Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show... We showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, my guest today is a compulsive gambler who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, I'd like to welcome Michael back on the show again. Hi, Michael. Hi, Bill. It's good to be back. Good. Uh, Michael, um, we were privileged to have you on the show about 18 months ago, back in 2021. So we've probably got a bit more of your recovery in GA to catch up on. Uh, we can do a, a bit more of an in-depth look at your recovery in GA uh, later in the show. But first, uh, would you like to share some of your early gambling story with us and you know, talk about what led you to seek recovery uh, or seek help in Gamblers Anonymous? Sure. So my background is, is probably familiar to uh, a number of people in your audience. Um, I grew up in a household, uh, not one that was particularly either averse or into gambling. So, you know, there were social card games among friends. Uh, you know, there was the one horse race a year. Um, you know, those kinds of things were, were sort of normal and acceptable kind of behaviours. And, and I grew up watching that and, and thinking, you know, there was nothing particularly wrong. You know, there's the Saturday night lotto um, and that kind of thing. But what I found in my... Um, very late 20s. My first marriage was um, breaking down. And I uh, realised in hindsight that I was an immature person. I, I was not very emotionally mature, didn't know how to deal with emotional disturbances or, or, or upset, you know, and uh, had never really learnt those skills. And one day when I was feeling particularly bad, when I kind of had the internal realisation that it was over, I left the house and went to into town, went, find, found a, a, a venue to walk into. I wasn't, I can't say I was actively seeking to gamble. I just wanted to kill time. You know, I wanted to get away from myself and those feelings. So I walked into a venue and plonked myself down in front of a, a poker machine you know, started feeding it and uh, with no great aim in mind. And lo and behold, the bell started ringing. I, I had some kind of a decent win. And people were sort of gathering around me. And, and uh, strangely enough, I did not feel particularly excited or thrilled. I was still feeling very depressed about my situation, my personal situation. But what that did, again, in hindsight, is that that actually cemented a pattern of behaviour that when things got tough, 
or when I didn't want to face something, I would find a venue and go blow out the world. And uh, and that became a pattern of behaviour over the next few years. And, uh, you know, and I, I went through a divorce and, and, and all that that entails and met someone new, you know, in the, in the ensuing couple of years and, and uh, you know, we fell in love and, and uh, I uh, proposed and, and uh, you know, we sort of had a whirlwind of, of uh, getting of marriage and of uh, having a first child, uh, you know, changing my job circumstances, changing my living circumstances, and a lot of that emotional upheaval in a period of 12 months kind of, uh, again, uh, because I wasn't equipped to handle any of that, I turned as I had learned to turn to gambling and, and that kind of accelerated uh, that gambling and it's very soon got to that kind of cascading point where a lot of gamblers come all of a sudden, you know, their gambling gets to a point where you have some significant losses and then you start chasing those losses. So then irrespective of any external circumstance and emotional disturbance, the thing becomes self-sustaining and you start, you know, you enter this cycle of chasing losses, you know, borrowing more money or acquiring more money, uh, you know, in whatever, by whatever means, you know, usually not not particularly nice, They're often involving subdiffusion, occasionally involving, you know, um, potential criminality. And, you know, you, you're, you're ch- I was chasing these sort of losses and thinking that I could gamble my way out if I just, you know, bet big enough that I would win enough to kind of resolve my losses. But, of course, what had happened is I then, you know, it had me in its claws, the addiction. And so even though there was one or two occasions where I had reasonable wins, I couldn't walk away. I just couldn't walk away and I fed it all back in. Do you want to talk about that compulsion to to not walk away, that this this idea that you're you've got to stay there? What what is it? What what are you thinking at that point? Yeah, look, it's 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 really um I, I can't honestly say that there was a lot of rational thought. So in answer to your question, what was I thinking? I, I don't know that thinking is the right word. I was definitely feeling a lot and look it you know I in what I said before I characterize it as a kind of a, an escapism a form of escapism but there was also a thrill aspect to it right there was a thrill because I had effectively created this bubble of unreality around myself where I could park all my other problems at the door and then enter this thrilling world of excitement that had its own kind of rush you know, and the activity itself became, you know, the end goal. It wasn't even about winning or losing, but just staying in action. And so that inability to walk away, like I remember distinctly, very clearly, I can close my eyes and visualise times when I literally had to empty my pockets and kind of hit the ATM limit in order to be able to drag myself out of a venue, you know. And, you know, I knew at that point that I had, it was a true addiction. I mean, I knew that I had a problem. I had no idea how to solve it. 
like I tried better limitation. I tried limiting, you know, leaving my cards uh, at the office or whatever. And all that did, you know, or at home, all that did was defer the, the activity to when I got home and got access to the card. And then, like, there was no no structure or limitation that I could put in place myself that could stop me from myself, right? So, so, and I was later to find that that was a key realisation that actually made recovery in GA possible for me because, uh, you know, to realise that, that I had no power over it, I was totally powerless no matter what, you know. Yeah, thank you. Do you want to talk about how it interfered with your relationship with your wife and, and, and child? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a very secretive person. Um, you know, I had learned from childhood to, to be a bit uh, secretive and kind of carve out a secret life. My my mum had me convinced when I was a kid that she had spies everywhere and knew, and knew what I was uh, doing at all times. So, so this kind of psychological need to carve out a secret life was born then. But I guess in, in my second marriage, uh, while I was at the height of, of that addiction, uh, that manifested in having separate finances. I had m- multiple accounts. And in order to, you know, when, when occasionally I, w- I would get questioned about finances or financial situation, I would shuffle stuff from one account to another and get, uh, you know, balance statements at different points in time to show that everything was hunky-dory uh, when, in fact, that was far from the case. And and my child was um, uh, still months old, you know, not, not a year old yet. And, uh, you know, but the lying, I was lying to, to, to work. I was lying to my wife to explain away losses of time and why things you know couldn't be paid at that point in time and I had just had to sort something out and this other bill and you know work delayed their payment or or whatever else and that line kind of reached I guess a critical mass and I was I had made a point of making sure that I would always be the one to get the post so that I could collect the um, credit card bills uh, before anyone else collected them and uh, that's that was my undoing. I, I one day forgot to to do that, or didn't do that in time. And and uh, my wife saw the credit card statement and uh, was shocked and uh, confronted me. And uh, you know I had to confess to what I was doing. And um, you know it was at that point that that she realised that that uh, I had a, a significant problem and and insisted that we join our finances, and so that, such that there would be no way for me to then gamble again without her knowing about it. You know, and all finances were in her control. And the funny thing is about the addictiveness of that. Even knowing that we had put that in place and done that, and knowing that I would get caught. That still didn't stop me. I kind of white-knuckled it for about a month and then I, I could not help myself, went back and, and gambled more. And, of course, the inevitable happened and, and I got caught again. And I, and I guess what's really instructive about that part, that second being caught out, 
and knowing that I would be caught out and doing it anyway, there's almost like a, if I, I've thought about it many times, there's, there was like a deferral of, of rational thought to the future in that I'm going to do this thing now. It's totally irrational. It makes no sense. But somehow, at some point in the near future, I will figure it out and I'll be able to talk my way out of it or fashion a way to explain away what had happened because, of course, I had successfully done that in the past on numerous occasions. So part of my mind still thought that I could kind of talk my way out of something that clearly at face value I couldn't. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite funny, isn't it, that, uh, that concept? A lot of addictions, compulsions require people to not be honest and I think making excuses and being good at making excuses is quite a skill that you learn. I, I think I learned mine as a child, making excuses. And and as you go through, the excuses excuses get more and more elaborate and probably less and less believable in real terms. But it, it's quite a funny concept, isn't it? It is. Somebody else will believe this concocted story all the time. Yes. I mean, I, I at the time, I thought of myself as very, very clever. In hindsight, I think, you know, short of being tattooed on my forehead, I think it would have been obvious to anyone around me that, that something was not right. Even though they may have not known the details, it would have been obvious that something was not right. But at the time, uh, I was certainly a very, very poor well, observer of self. I, I had very little self-awareness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what about work? How did it impact work? Oh, look... You know, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that the nature of my work means that I can come and go without a lot of question. It's more about, you know, results. But I wasn't even getting the results. I was always, again, uh, talking about concocting fictions. I was creating elaborate reasons for why things were late and, and uh, you know, where I had been. And, um, you know, there, there was a stage where I was working for an organisation that had multiple buildings in the city. So I would make excuses that I was going to the other place and telling them I was going to the other one. And then, of course, kind of creating these little holes in time uh, where when I would go gamble and, and, and uh, blaming bureaucracy for, for why things were going wrong. And so it was, it was, I was not a very efficient worker. I was not a very, um, committed worker um you know and I, I look back on that as um pretty poor really you know shameful actually yeah well not only to the people who your employers but your co-workers as well i guess oh of course absolutely absolutely i mean they would have had to kind of either carry my share of the weight or make excuses on my behalf you know, to others along the chain. And, and uh, yeah, that, that's unfair. That's unfair. Okay. Well, listen, we might take a short break there. Uh, our first song today is Fever Dreams by Sagana, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Pretty far just to go get beer. Hold on. Myself. 
Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Lukman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient and electronic music. Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show. Mainstreaming Arabic Mazika. Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Today I'm talking with Michael and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, Michael, before the break, we talked about uh, the impact of gambling on your life and I guess you know the effect on marriage and work and relationships. We didn't actually reach the point where you talked about what got you into GA or what it was like when you first got there. So do you want to talk about that first? Absolutely, yeah. Look, uh, what, what got me there um, was getting caught out a second time and uh, I knew at that point that I had run out of chances there were no more excuses no more lies and i was fortunate enough to be working with someone uh, who is part of their uh, role was a counselor and they said to me listen you need to get to ga and i found a meeting that night it was a monday night in carlton in 1998 and uh you know at uh, the church there and you know i turned up i wasn't sure exactly where i was supposed to be I was about to turn away when someone, uh, you know, a greeter uh, saw me loitering and, and said, you know, mate, I think uh, you need to come inside. And, and uh, I went inside. And and what struck me most about that first meeting was how warm and welcoming it was. They, they were, you know, very, they had never met me before. They certainly didn't know the terrible things that I had done, but they were warm and open to me, which was a bit of a shock. But even more shocking to me was that they were kind of laughing and 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 there was a joy amongst them, uh, you know, between them. And and uh, and then when the meeting started and they started sharing their stories, I realised for the first time that I wasn't the only one. I wasn't, you know, alone in my craziness as I thought. And uh, and that other people had this problem and that it was a problem and that it was fixable, that there was, you know, something that could be done to change my life around. And and, and honestly, I, I don't remember a lot more than that other than, you know, kind of bawling my eyes out uh, for most of the meeting. I went in kind of hopeless and I came, went out uh, of that meeting with hope. 
for the first time. And, uh, you know, and I grabbed it with both hands and I, I, I started attending meetings on a regular basis at Caulfield. And, you know, and that was fantastic. I, I had what, uh, you know, in, in a lot of 12-steppers refer to as the gift of despair and, uh, you know, G-O-D, and I had the gift of despair and, and that kind of really kept me going for a long time. I, I it was going to meetings and I was, you know, my abstinence was growing, life was turning, the financial situation was turning around pretty quickly and I was regaining trust. But interestingly, um, in that first stint, at Gamblers Anonymous, I didn't fully accept the program. I looked at the 12 steps and I treated it as an a la carte menu. I, I thought, oh, I can kind of pick and choose which of those apply to me. You know, um, I still saw myself as a bit different to everyone else. I still thought I was the smartest guy in the room. You know, so I hadn't parked my ego at the door at all or taken it down any pegs, which is bizarre when I consider my entry into GA. And of course, what ended up happening was because I wasn't fully working the program, I ended up getting complacent and wandering away after about seven years. And and I then spent a number of years away from the fellowship. And even though my gambling binges in that time were periodic, you know, spaced two or three years apart, I was in a, emotionally in a very bad state. You know, my children, I had two children by that stage and they were in their early teens and I was not the greatest father in the world. There was a lot of emotional damage that I inflicted because of my inability. I'd never learned to master my emotions or to deal with my emotions or to sit with my, my anger and to calm myself down. I was a very angry person. And then finally, through an act of grace, that's all I can characterise it as, someone else in my uh, circle needed help, you know, had a compulsive gambling problem. I said, mate, I know where to take you. And I took them to their first meeting and it was my first meeting back. And I realised what I had been missing and what I needed. And that was the moment that I truly decided I am going to give up and park my ego, I, I have to, in fact, put a stake in my ego and really just embrace the fullness of the program. And I thought, well, that means everything, every step. You know, I had a problem with the whole concept of God. I thought, I've got to accept a higher power and find a, a concept of higher power that works for me. And so I dedicated myself to that task for the next few years, trying to to figure out what, what does a higher power mean for me, you know? Um, and that was a critical, a critical turning point in my recovery when, when that happened. So do you want to talk a little bit about that concept? So I guess a lot of people see anonymous fellowships, particularly 12-step ones, as being, I guess, quasi-religious because of the concept of God. But a concept of a higher power or a spiritual concept to me is much more, I guess, palatable. And, and I tend to think of it as instead of something f like hard and physical, it's, it's more fluid and, you know, this concept of we're, we're grasping uh, in the physical world, you can grasp and hold on to something. Yeah. But in the spiritual world, it sort of slips through your fingers. It, it's, it's not something that can be constrained. And so it's something that, that exists that we can't control. Yeah. And, well, I mean, it's funny that you should say that because... 
a lot of what you just described actually formed the basis of what I um, have kind of landed on. I mean, when I first went into GA, I was a dead set atheist. And I thought, okay, you know, other people believe stuff, that's fine. It's just not for me, right? And that was why I, I had that kind of pick and choose um, approach in the first instance. But when I, I reread the literature closely and I thought, well, it talks of a higher power of your own understanding, right? So they wouldn't say that if that's not what they meant. Um, you know, if they meant a particular kind of God, then they would have said that. It would have been very clear. So it, it was clear to me that they were trying to appeal to a broad range of people and there was something in the concept of spirituality, you know, which is independent of a particular view of a deity, right? You know, so I thought, well, I've got to just kind of find what the formula is for me. And I accepted in the literature that God is effectively just an acronym. It's a short, it's a short bit of shorthand for higher power of your own understanding, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It's a lot easier to just say God. But for me, what I realized was I had two realizations. One was that um, the moment that I realized that gambling was a higher power over me. When I realized that I was, I, I reassessed my own powerlessness and I thought, oh my God, that means if I am powerless over gambling, that means that gambling has power over me. Gambling is a higher power than me. And then I thought, well, the universe can't be that terrible that there's only bad higher powers. There must be good higher powers. So if gambling could be a higher power, there must be something else. And initially I thought, well, the fellowship itself, the program, the meetings, the whole, the entirety of that package, I thought, is also a higher power because by virtue of attending the meetings and working the program, I could achieve abstinence that on my own was totally, you know, um, I, I was unable to, to get any sort of abstinence on my own. So, again, by definition, I had shown to myself evidence that he was this other power that was also greater than me. And that was the start. For me, initially, the program was a higher power than myself, and that was sufficient to kind of get me started. But what's happened to me, it's evolved now as I – um, you know, because it says in you know to in eleventh step, you know, prayer and meditation, and and I started doing that. And really, as I worked through the steps, I realised that it wasn't about me. You know, the higher power, the whole purpose of it is to say that it's not me. I thought in the past, in my addictive self, I thought that I was the higher power. I thought I was the smartest guy in every room. I thought I had full control over my life. I thought I had full control over other people's lives and I tried to direct like a giant puppet master, you know, the, this whole sort of array, tableau of characters in front of me and around me. And, of course, the reality was that I could I could control none of those things. I couldn't control my own emotions, let alone anyone else. And the frustrations of trying to do so, you know, still did not you know, sort of shine a light, a light bulb in my mind to say, hey, buddy, this isn't you. You are not God. You are clearly not God. The evidence shows that you're not God. So kind of give it up, you know, and and, and I realise that the, there are two key aspects of the whole concept of higher power for me. One is that it's not me. I am not at the top of that pyramid. 
you know, I'm not the director of all. You know, if anything, these days I view myself as a soldier. What does a soldier do? A soldier has is given a mission and is given orders. And their job, they only have one job, follow the orders to the best of their ability. And they train, and they train to follow their orders. And that's how I view my recovery. I view my recovery today is, you know, the program sets out the orders I have to follow. You know, you don't see soldiers complaining to their COs, uh, listen, I don't particularly like that order, so I'm not going to follow it, you know. I follow the orders. The step says, says I have to do this, that's what I will do. I have to have a higher power, I will have a conception of a higher power. And where I've it's evolved to is today, all I know is that, A, there is a higher power that exists. There is something there greater than me that's not me that helps me be a better human being today and it helps me uh, forestall my addiction. You know, I mean, I'm still genetically an addict, right, but I'm an addict in recovery today and that's by the grace of that higher power. And the other aspect of, of that, knowing that it's there and having therefore faith that I can deal with whatever life throws at me is that I don't have to know what the higher power is. I don't have to describe it. In the book, in the literature, it doesn't say anywhere, please describe your concept of a higher power. Tell, tell us whether, you know, it's a he or a she, they sit on a throne in the clouds or whatever else. Uh, you know, it doesn't say anything like that. And so I don't, have to, I don't have to know. And that's also helpful for me to park my ego, to think that I could be smart enough to understand what sort of universal higher powers are out there and to conceive that in its totality, gee, that's arrogance, you know. <laughs> so today I'm definitely not arrogant. I know that I, I I may never know what that higher power is exactly, but I have enough faith in its existence that that is, you know, totally rock solid for me and has, has helped me leaps and bounds. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I think believing a higher power is the thing that can empower me to improve I think it's enough because there wasn't anything that would help me. As you, you mentioned earlier, coming into um, Gamblers Anonymous, feeling hopeless and, and gaining hope that things could improve, I think is the thing that trust that fellowships provide is that it's a complete 180 degrees. It's just, you know, I can't do it, therefore it can't be done. To yes. other people can do it, I must be able to do it too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's great. Absolutely. The other one we were talking about was service work. You mentioned that you got back into GA by trying to help someone else. So do you want to talk a bit about the importance of being involved in the organisation and giving back to help other people achieve what you've achieved? Yeah, absolutely. I, I got to service work th through my acceptance second round time that, that none of the steps were optional for me. You know, and, and uh, step 12 describes, you know, carrying the message to other compulsive gamblers. And, you know, I've heard it said in meetings many times by, by members older and wiser than me that a key part of their recovery was getting in the centre, you know, getting in the middle of the program and not being at the fringes, you know, not turning up a minute before the start of the meeting and buggering off for the second it's over. <laughs> you know, helping 
you know, to set up the room, taking a service position, being the treasurer, being the secretary, being the, the delegate for the regional service office, or you know, or taking a position at the at the RSO and uh, you know, helping them manning the phones, or uh, or even uh, you know, being a sponsor uh, to someone, or even just catching up with people, you know, and contacting them and say, "How are you doing?" You know, this is how I'm doing, and I found that. For me, all of that has actually formed a key part of, um, I guess part of giving means that you're focusing your attention outside of your own desires, right, and you're focusing on others and their needs and you're trying to, in a way, to help them. It may be a very small way, setting up the chairs, packing up the chairs, you know. That may seem tiny, you know, or some people have said, say, being a greeter at a meeting, you know, the person that hangs around outside for the first 15 minutes to welcome new members. You know, it's a pretty, it sounds like a pretty cushy kind of a job, but actually it's critical. So many new members have described how transformative that first interaction is with someone, you know, who sticks out the hand of friendship when they feel completely worthless, you know, and, and full of self-hate. Uh, and they turn up and someone smiles at them and, and sticks out their hand, you know, that can be, you know, a life-changing event for people. And, uh, you know, so service work is is a key part. And and this is one of those paradoxes of the 12-step program where helping others helps you. I mean, I find that in my recovery, I am stronger for it. You know, when COVID hit, Back in 20, March of 2020, when this was all starting, I remember telling someone at work, oh, you know, this will last a few weeks. It's no big deal. Don't sweat it. And then when I realised that, oh, my God, this is actually going to last quite a long time, you know, I mean, like a lot of organisations, GA also scrambled to get some Zoom meetings going, you know, and I knew I had to volunteer to chair some of those because, I knew that in extreme circumstances, if my recovery and all aspects of it were not, you know, running at 100%, that I would be vulnerable. And so I had to actually step up and lift my own game as part of protecting myself. I, I, I really felt that very acutely. I thought, okay, this is, you've been now in GA for quite a number of years this is the moment you've been training for. Here's the big crisis. You have to step out up now and really, you know, help yourself and help others. And, and again, I, I go back to that analogy of the soldier. I mean, most soldiers never see a war. Right? They'll never see. They train, they train, they train, and then they finally finish up and they, they go. But occasionally that happens, and I felt that very acutely. I thought, this is it. A lot of us are going to suffer. I may suffer. Uh, I would have suffered. I knew that I would have suffered and everyone suffered, but uh, it's about degree, isn't it? And so for me, service work is a, a key part. And recently I've said, I've shared in a meeting that um, we're kind of like elite athletes or we have to be. You know, elite athletes don't take holidays from their training. They don't decide that, you know, they're going to sort of slacken off because, you know, they're not in the mood. Right. It's not about mood and it's not about uh, there's no optionality about it. If you want to be at that level, that's what you have to do. They do all the one percenters. You know, you talk about you hear about elite sporting coaches, T 
telling their, their, their teams to do all the one percenters, eating the right thing, um, you know, training the right way, um, you know, all the, you know, micromanaging the smallest aspect of that training. And that's true for me too. Service work is a part of that. Attending meetings is a part of that. Contacting other members outside of meetings is a part of that. My own routine in the morning of reading my day at a time, uh, reading, contemplating that, uh, and praying in the mornings, you know, and, and setting what my affirmation for the day is. And then in the evenings to do my daily inventory and to do my gratitude journal and to reflect on how I've gone today and, and how I, I want to go tomorrow. You know, um, that's all. I have to do all of those things. The second I, I've realised in the last couple of years, the moment I put any of those things down, because I am human, you know, I do occasionally just, feel a bit slack and tired and, and life, of course, intervenes and your energy levels are not always the same. And, and there have been times and days when I've thought, oh, bugger it, you know, I'll just lie in bed. And then what I find myself is that very rapidly, usually within a day or two, I can actually feel my mind starting to build the prospective justifications for slackening off further. And today I'm... I'm acutely aware of when that happens so i recognize it within myself and, and think okay you better get back on the the horse you idiot because otherwise you're going to be you know it's going to be kicking you in the head so um you know and and i jump back on but look it's it's a daily thing and and uh you know i just remind myself that uh, you know it's not a choice thing i just do it i integrate it in my life and i just do it just like i have breakfast every day yeah <laughs> That's right. Repetition. Yeah. Repetition. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's take another short break there. Up next, we have Magical Navigation uh, by Mix Reaction, uh, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. Merhaba. Bugün nasılsınız? A Turkish eco-feminist approach to dismantle the toxic misconception of the good immigrant. Intrigued? Well, so are we. The Good Immigrant is broadcasted in Turkish every Thursday between 6.30pm to 7pm. Tell your friends and family because you have a date with Özesuen Özgü. 8.55 a.m. Thursdays, 6.30 p.m. to 7.00 p.m. See you all then. Uh, welcome back. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with Michael and we're talking about his compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, so, Michael, before the break, we talked a bit about the spiritual concept and the importance of service work. So now I'd like to talk a bit more about tw- the 12 steps and what they mean to you and I guess how you've benefited by looking at them a lot of people call it studying but you know looking at the at the 12 steps and uh, looking at how that can improve your understanding of yourself look i i have come to so greatly appreciate the beauty of the 12 steps and and uh, and how amazingly well integrated a path it offers for people to become a better version of themselves So, you know, it starts off with acceptance of your own powerlessness and and really that first step is about kind of softening you up and accepting your, you know, giving you a real sense of perspective on on reality, on the reality of your situation and your your behaviours. And then, you know, it goes straight into the next couple of steps which really are about establishing this concept of a higher power and of putting yourself in a position with respect to that higher power and of accepting that you are not the higher power, you know, because, again, you know, that's what kind of got us into this mess, you know, and then it smoothly goes into the whole concept of the inventory where we actually introspect in detail for the first time. And for myself, just like with a lot of people, that introspection and, and that kind of working that step four has been a cyclical thing, you know. A lot of us have done things or experienced things and had things done to us where, you know, you may be ready to share some of that with the world and you may not be ready to share all of it at a given point in time, you know. There's a reason 
why psychologists take quite a long time to uncover and help patients deal with trauma and traumatic events, you know. Uh, and so that's a reasonable thing, but it's one that I guess I had to appreciate that this isn't a once and done thing, that the 12 steps are actually a cycle. And for myself, you know, I mean, you mentioned the, the phrase studying the steps. I mean, we use, you know, often we use the, the, the phrase working the steps and I, I actually prefer that one because for me it is a, a program of action, of, of positive acts that you have to actually undertake. It isn't just about reading the words. It's about having, some people call it, um, you know, a spiritual awakening, or but, but basically having a sequence of realisations slash epiphanies that help you, you know, blossom and uncover and, you know, scrub off these defects of character like barnacles off a of the hull of a ship, you know. And so, you know, that, that inventory is a big part of it because we spend, in my case, I certainly spent a lot of time avoiding facing certain things. And I thought that the things that I was facing were external to me, but really a big part of what I was avoiding facing was myself and the true nature of myself. I was not the smartest guy in the world. I was not a moral and ethical human being because I thought I was, even in the face of the evidence to the contrary, I thought I was. But I had to realise that I, and, and accept and understand and acknowledge that I had done all these specific things, proof of uh, you know, bad behaviours and bad thinking and bad decisions, bad choices, you know, and I had to acknowledge those things. And, of course, doing that, you know, it's like picking, picking off a giant scab. It can be painful, right? But getting that out into the open and facing it is the first step in actually dealing with it all. And then that facing it, part of that, of course, is step five, sharing that with another human being, which is effectively an accountability step because you know when you are fronting up in front of another person discussing your most closely guarded terrible secrets you know that you have faced that there is no there is no sugarcoating that and and you know people often talk about steps four and five as being painful and they certainly can be you know, and then the next three steps are about our defects of character. And this is an interesting one because there's, a, again, a bit of a paradox here where we say, oh, you know, uh, addiction is kind of genetic, you know, genetic predisposition. What has, uh, you know, character got to do with it? You know, in the future, they'll have some sort of genetic treatment and we'll all be cured. But really, the Character defects, in my case, lying, secretiveness, um, you know, a whole a whole swag. Uh, there's a, a, literally, I'd, I'd be here for another 20 minutes reciting them all. Um, you know, anger, all those things. It's not that they create or engender the addiction, but they enable the addiction, right? They are the difference between having a latent addiction or an 
absolutely explosively active addiction in my case, you know, and and therefore dealing with them is about kicking the legs out from under the table that supports that addiction. So I've got to work on those things in order to stay abstinent and to keep working on my recovery. And then you get to the steps where you now have to actually make amends to people. You've got to think of all the people you've harmed, including yourself, and then you've got to actually begin the process of apologising and making financial amends or whatever kind of amends you have to make. And sometimes, you know, you can't make direct amends. You can't rebuild certain relationships or people may have passed on or died or, you know, and so the, the opportunity to do that is lost. And in those cases, you have to be satisfied with making indirect amends. And in my case, how I view that is by, you know, I make amends in my heart to that individual for those things that I can't undo by being a better person today, by acknowledging it, acknowledging it to them if they're still around, but also to say, you know what, I'm going to be different today and I'm going to do that on a daily basis one day at a time. You know, And that's a huge, huge part of that for me. And then you get into the whole maintenance of good character and maintenance of, of abstinence and, and maintaining that healthy spiritual, well, spiritual health, it is that, you know, around the daily inventory, which is what, you know, uh, step 10 is a meditation and prayer. So you're, you're constantly activating the spiritual part of your mind, which is all around, you know, honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, and all those, you know, kindness, generosity, humility, all those things that take us away from our desires, the kind of those base reptilian desires that underpin a lot of addictiveness, you know, and then finally you land on step 12 where you're, you're completing the circle and the help that was given to you, you know, by people that helped you along the way and set up the meeting and make sure that there was a meeting there and that reached out the hand and took you for a coffee and, and sat you down and told you things would be okay, you're completing that circle, you know. And, uh, I mean, I, I can't think of a more wonderful, you know, progression of, I guess, uh, a rediscovery of your positive self. Yeah, I agree. I was going to mention that I've heard the spiritual awakening described as a change of attitude sufficient to recover from the effects of whatever. And I think that's a pretty powerful to me because it um, it's very hard to change a negative attitude. And if it can be done, if it is done, it, it's a profound change. And it doesn't matter whether you're a, an addict or a compulsive person or somebody who's trying to cope with someone in addiction or compulsion, um, being able to have a change of attitude means that you can view the situation differently yes. and respond differently, which is really helpful. Absolutely agree. The other one was talking about the defects of character, the patterns of behaviour, patterns of my behaviour that keep me doing the same things understanding what they are is pretty important that's for sure yeah yeah uh, okay well michael well thanks a lot for um for sharing today it's been really helpful if anybody would like to find out more about gamblers anonymous uh you can find them in victoria on 03 9696 6108 or go online at gaaustralia.org.au 
and there you'll find more information on recovery from compulsive gambling. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank you, Michael, for sharing your gambling recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous have helped in your recovery. Thanks, Bill. I've loved the opportunity. Thank you. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when I'll be talking about recovery from alcoholism uh, with Rod, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Coming up next, we have Balanwa, the Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Telgum Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in the spirit of war on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.